0: So, today we are continuing on in our series in the book of Acts entitled To the Ends of the Earth. And we've been talking together about the evangelistic witness of those first Christians. And the thing that I want to talk about today is the message they preached. In other words, what was the gospel that the early apostles preached? Now, I've been a Christian for a little over 30 years now. And I've always been vocal about my faith, but I don't think I've always been clear on what the core message of the gospel actually is. Uh, When I was uh, in my, I think 16, 17, 18 years old, um, I I really wanted to be a good Christian, and I grew up in a tradition that taught me that one of the things that a good, faithful, really zealous, on-fire Christian will do would be to go out and go street witnessing. And so, uh, we would have this experience where on Saturday evenings, we would go down into downtown Long Beach at Pine Avenue. Uh, there was a movie theater down there and a bunch of great restaurants. And, um, and essentially, what I would do is I would interrupt uh, unsuspecting couples on dates, and I would try to evangelize them. And I had learned a method of evangelism called, uh, it was called evangelism explosion which is, what a title, Evangelism Explosion, you know. And, uh, and essentially what I was taught was to go up and to ask people this question, look, if you were to die and tonight you were to stand before God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And then usually there would be kind of like a blank look on people's face or they would start saying, well, I was a good person. I would say, wrong, you know, <laughs> you're a sinner. And, and essentially then, my goal would be to share with them how they were sinners, how they were broken, how they were a mess, and that only if they were forgiven would they be able to enter into heaven when they died. And then I would ask them, would you like to say a prayer with me and invite Jesus into your heart so that you can know that you're forgiven, so that you can go to heaven when you die. And that was essentially the message that I would preach to these people. Um, to, to, to people. And it was kind of my, my basic gospel message. If you were to ask me, Josh, what is the gospel? I think I would have said something simply like this. Maybe it's an answer that some of you would give. And it was something like this uh, We're sinners, uh, we, 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 we're, we're in danger, and we can't get into heaven on our own. And so we need Jesus to forgive us of our sins and ensure that we can go to heaven when we die. But what's interesting is as I have grown in my understanding of Scripture, as I have immersed myself more deeply into the teaching of the New Testament, I've seen that actually if you were to ask, let's say, Peter or James or John, what is the gospel, I don't think they would answer the way I did. In fact, I think, I think the core elements that they might bring out would be quite different than the core elements about heaven and about my sin and this sort of thing that I brought out. And so that raises the question, well, what what would they bring out? Well, to answer that question, I want to invite you to consider one of the evangelistic sermons in the book of Acts. So think about this. If you're like, Peter, how, how would you share the gospel? Paul, how would you share the gospel? Do you realize you can read through the book of Acts and you have a very clear answer to that question? Uh, there are seven, maybe eight sermons in the book of Acts that are evangelistic. It's Peter, it's Paul, it's Stephen. Uh, they are preaching the gospel to people who don't know Jesus, they're not Christians. And by studying those sermons, you can learn how they preached the gospel. And what's interesting is that the, the core elements that they brought out were, were, were they, they, they're They're different than the things I brought out. For example, in the preaching of the early Christians, they don't talk about going to heaven when you die, Uh, they don't give any threats about going to hell. Uh, there, there is, um, there's not even, uh, they, they don't even have a moment where the lights go down low and in an auditorium where there's a little bit of a curve, you invite people to come forward and to say a prayer, a little formulaic prayer. There's none of that in the book of Acts. They, a lot of the stuff that's incredibly present, it's right at the center of so much of our gospel evangelistic preaching is actually missing from the early preaching of the apostles. So that raises a question, which is, well, what what was present? What did they preach? What was the apostolic gospel? What was the gospel that the apostles preached? And it's that question that we're going to explore today by looking at a sermon that was preached by the apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. Now, uh, we began looking at this text last week. Of course, there was that crazy event. There was a sound, and then, a, a mighty rushing wind, and then tongues of fire, and then the early Christians went out. And they began speaking in other languages. The gospel people are like, "What's going on here?" And Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon. And I, I want to draw your attention to a little section in the sermon where Peter really gets to the heart of the gospel. But before we do that, I, I just want to I want to make one comment about this word gospel. So. Uh, when, when you hear the word gospel, what, what comes to your mind? Now, good, good news, that's a good answer. That actually would come to the early church's mind. And uh, it was interesting, I sent a text to a friend of Alicia and I's who uh, is unchurched, and I asked her, I said, hey, um, when you hear the word gospel, what comes to your mind? She's very unchurched, no church background, really. And she sent back and she just said, um church which I just thought was an interesting answer. Some of us think about gospel as an adjective, as in it describes a particular kind of music, like gospel music, a particular kind of preaching, gospel preaching, the kind of preaching, the kind of music you might hear in church. But in the first century, the word gospel was actually a technical word, and it didn't have a whole lot of religious connotations. Uh, In the first century, uh, that word gospel, it's simply, uh, it's it's the Greek word, euangelion, and as Steve indicated, it's translated as good news. And what historians know, and what New Testament scholars will tell you, is that when this word was chosen to apply to the core message of early Christians, it had a very specific meaning. And in the Greco-Roman world, it was a technical term and it basically referred to an announcement of a great victory or maybe the birth or the accession of an emperor in other words the gospel in the first century was a it was news of an epic world altering history changing event that affects everything and everyone must respond to the gospel was news great news of an epic world-altering, history-changing event that affects everything and everyone must respond to. And so, for, for example, one of the most famous pre-Christian uses of this word gospel is found on an inscription about Caesar Augustus dating from 9 BC. And uh, that inscription says, says this, the providence which has ordered the whole of our life showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life. So what is the most perfect consummation of human life? Well, it's this. By giving to it Augustus, Caesar, by sending in him, as it were, a savior for us, to make war to cease, to create order everywhere. The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. So do you see what, it, they're using the word gospel as, as news of an epic, world-altering, history-changing event, the birth of Augustus Caesar. And when the New Testament authors utilized this word, they were using it in a similar way. They were describing an epic, world-altering, history-changing event that affected everything and that everyone must respond to. Now, what was that history-changing, world-altering event that they came to announce? Well, Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, he says this, "'Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know.'" First and foremost, when the early church announced the gospel, what they meant was not a system or a formula of how you can get to heaven when you die. When they announced the gospel, they spoke first and foremost about the events of Jesus. The incarnation, the life, and as we'll go on to see, the crucifixion, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. It was the event of Jesus that for the early church was the news that they needed to announce. In fact, you know that inscription we just read? The beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus, the savior of the world. Mark, uh, the gospel writer, introduces his gospel by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this to say, the true good news that is altering human history is not the birth of Augustus Caesar, it is the birth of Jesus. It is the event of Jesus. And in Peter's sermon, he highlights four aspects of the event, of the life of Jesus. And uh, I, I wanna draw your attention to them by pointing out four words in his sermon. The first word is this word, attested. Notice what it says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works. Now, what does that word attested mean? Uh, I didn't immediately know, so I had to look it up online. I just Googled attested. I got the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary definition. And it simply means this. To attest means to, quote, affirm to be true Or genuine. So it says, Men of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth was a man who was affirmed to be true and genuine to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. So, true and genuine, what though? Well, if you were an ancient Israelite, you knew the answer to that question. You see, ancient Israelites lived with a core set of longings about the world that were informed by their ancient prophets. They longed for a world. They ached for a world when injustice would finally be put down, when their enemies would be defeated, when God would once again come and live among them, when God might even bring renewal in their hearts, where the very presence of God would return to the temple. They longed, they looked for and hoped for this day when God would act again and overthrow everything that was wrong with the world and put everything to right again and to make everything good and beautiful in this world. And they believed that God would act in the world through a messianic king who he would send a leader a ruler who would come into the world and in some of the the sections of the old testament that ruler it was clear would be a descendant of the great king david they knew david was their great champion who uh, battled against Goliath as their representative on their behalf, and they looked for a true and better David who would come in and who would battle against their greater enemies than Goliath, defeat them, and be the champion of the people. They looked for a descendant of David who would establish a kingdom that would stretch over not just Israel, but over all of the world. This would be God's king coming into God's world. Now, what's interesting is that while some some of the Old Testament ancient prophets envisioned that the one who was to come would be the descendant of David... Other prophets like Isaiah and Isaiah 60 imagined that, that God himself was going to come. God would come and rule in this world. In other words, you know, we have had enough of uh, earthly rulers who are corrupt and uh, who are disappointing. Can I get a witness on that? <laughs> we long for God to act in this world. And the ancient Israelites longed for God to come and act and to establish God's own saving, healing rule and reign on earth and to overturn what was wrong and again, make everything new. And so some of the prophets said this was going to happen through a Davidic king, others that God himself would come. And some of the prophets even drew those two lines together and said, no, the the ruler, the king would be a divine king who would share God's throne. In fact, uh, the prophet Daniel envisioned that one like the Son of Man, which was one of Jesus' favorite ways to describe himself, would take the throne and would share somehow God's rule with God's self and would rule over every tribe and nation and tongue and people. And they held onto these hopes and these longings, and they live with this question, God, when, when will you come, again? when will you send your Messiah, when will your rule and reign break out in this world again and heal what's broken and fractured and wrong with everything and with us, when will you come? And what Peter is saying on the day of Pentecost is that day has arrived, that God's rule. God's king has come. The messianic leader has entered into creation, and he says it is attested to you by God. You've seen him. By mighty works and wonders and signs, he healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He cast out the demons. I mean, he taught with unsurpassed wisdom. Uh, he, He moved toward the broken with unparalleled compassion. Here, God's king was coming among us, and Peter tells that audience, and he tells us all, here's the announcement. God has come among us in Jesus, and he has demonstrated that God's rule, God's Messiah has come in Jesus, and it is attested to you by the life of Jesus. You are witnessing it in his healings, in his exorcisms, in all that he's doing. But he presses on. He presses on, and... And he says, Jesus was not only attested before your eyes to be the true, unauthentic, long-awaited messianic king, but he goes on and and he says this. He says, this Jesus was also delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men." Now, I want you to notice that phrase. He looks at this crowd and he says, you crucified him. Now, I know sometimes we will speak metaphorically about the death of Jesus, and we will say, it was you, it was me who put Jesus on the cross because it was our sins that nailed him there. But Peter is not, on this, in this instance, speaking metaphorically. Peter is talking six weeks after the event of the crucifixion. He is speaking literally to the very group of people that cried out, crucify him, crucify him. He is talking. He is looking at the very leaders that tried him in a court and handed him over to the Gentiles to have him put to death. And so he looks at them and he says, you crucified him. But he doesn't just say you crucified him. I mean, that in and of itself would have been shocking to them. You know, crucifixion in the ancient world was horrific. It was unspeakable. And he's like, you did this unspeakable thing to him. But what's interesting is he says, this wasn't simply your, it was your fault, but it was also according to God's plan. And this is fascinating. He says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He He says the definite, not just the plan, but the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. And I think on this moment, Peter perhaps is referring and he's thinking about Isaiah 53, where it speaks about the suffering servant a ruler who would come and actually suffer on behalf of his people, and it would say it was the will of God that he would end up entering into human suffering. It was God's plan that Christ go into the cross. Jesus would say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Now, if it was according to God's plan that Christ would go on the cross, plan to do what? What was his plan? plan. Well, contrary to what the casual onlookers might have thought, the cross was not a defeat, but a divine royal victory of the king. Strangely, through the public execution of Jesus, the one true God was dealing decisively with evil at its very heart by entering into evil itself, but in a way that nobody was expecting, not by meeting human folly and sin and brokenness with anger and wrath and military power and hate, but coming against human brokenness and sin and evil that, with, with divine love, self-giving, cross-bearing love. It was in this moment on the cross that God was executing a judicial sentence on sin itself. Strangely, God bears the sentence against sin within God's own life. In other words, instead of pushing out on humanity what we deserve, God in Christ bears in his own life what we deserve. And he absorbs the curse that entered into the world through human rebellion so that those of us who are bound and held by this curse can be released forever and instead of living under curse can live under the smile and the blessing of God. Now, I know sometimes we might ask, why, like, why can't God just forgive? Like, why, why does he have to do it this way? Like, I mean, isn't it easy to forgive? I mean, can't God just forgive? Is it really something he needs to suffer in order to forgive? Well, have you ever been painfully wounded and moved towards somebody with forgiveness? Is it easy? Do you suffer? Somebody has to pay. When somebody deeply wounds you, when they offend you, when they hurt you, they betray you, like you've got a choice to make when that, when that sword goes into your heart. You can pull it out and you can stab it back in them, or you bear it in yourself and move toward them instead with open arms of love. What does it look like for the creator of heaven and earth? To move towards his creation, not with the sword of judgment, but with arms of love and mercy, it means bearing all of the wrongs of humanity within God's own life in the crucifixion of Christ, or in the language of Isaiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on Christ the iniquity of us all. And through this radical act of suffering, self-giving, sin-bearing love, Paul says in Colossians that God in Christ mysteriously was disarming, quote, the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame, triumphing over them so that we can be set free by love. Love is stronger and more powerful force in the cosmos than hate. And in this, the love of God was being manifest in the world. It was being put on display in the world. In this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So the messianic, what is the, what's the news that Peter is announcing this world-altering, history-changing news that affects everything that everyone must respond to? It is that Jesus of Nazareth came into this world. He was attested, affirmed that he is the true and authentic messianic ruler, And the news is that the messianic ruler to everyone's shock against what everyone was expecting, not least of which his disciples, he enters into crucifixion willingly so that in this act he might enter into our pain and suffering and be our brother in our suffering on this earth so that he might bear in his life the curse and so break the curse and enable us to experience blessing. He enters in in order to defeat the principalities and powers. This is the news that the apostles are bringing that they can't stop talking about. But it doesn't end there. Notice he presses on. He says, but, he says, you crucified him, but God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The main thing is not that you killed him, that you had him executed or hung on a tree. It was that God raised him from the dead on the third day. It was not possible. Why? Well, because as he'll say in the next chapter, Christ is the very author of life. You can't hold the author of life under death. And it was not possible that death could hold him because death came into the world through sin. But here Christ breaks the power of sin. Death has no hold on him. It was not possible because the power of God's life and love are stronger than the power of death. And so Christ was raised up by God on the third day. And he continues. And it's interesting, he draws upon the ancient Hebrew scriptures to prove that this was always God's plan to raise the Messiah from the dead. And specifically, he quotes Psalm 16. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." So Psalm 16 is this prayer of David where he rejoices in God, that God will save him and not let him die. But look, Peter comments, he says, brothers, let's think about this, let's reason this one out. He says, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb was with us to this day. He says, look, uh, we know where David's buried. His 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 burial site was right there in Jerusalem. They could go. He's like, "We, we can go to his grave. Who was he talking about? And Peter answers his own question. He says, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Do you see his logic? He's saying, look, David can't be talking about himself. He's dead. He's buried. And so he was instead talking prophetically about one of his descendants who would sit on his throne, a future king in his lineage who would make all of the Old Testament promises come true. In this descendant, all of God's promises would be yes and amen. So David had to be speaking about something to come. And here's what he was speaking about. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He says, look, this is a public fact, an objective event in cosmic history. You know, it's like he's saying, look, you know, Caesar Augustus thinks all of his triumphs were great. Get this, in Jesus of Nazareth, God was triumphing in human history over sin and death and darkness. He was resurrected, and his resurrection was not simply a reanimated corpse, you know, like a zombie, you know, coming out of the tomb or something. And nor was it his spirit coming out so that the spirit of Jesus lives. No, Jesus was raised physically and bodily from the dead in a transformed, glorified physical body, never to die again. You know, the Jews were waiting for a day when there would be a final end time resurrection that would usher in the age to come. And in Jesus, God's new age has broken into this old world. The resurrection is the most important eschatological event when the creator unveiled his plan to save the whole cosmos in other words, we are not just living in the last days, we are now living in the first days of a whole new world order, a new creation that began when Jesus walked out of the tomb on Sunday. And so what was the, good, what was the news that they were announcing? It was that Christ was attested by his life of works and his miracles and his healings, but... but, but By the reality, he went to the cross and he broke the power of sin, and he was raised physically and bodily from the dead. And he moves on to the next point, the final element of the proclamation of the early apostles. And it's probably the element that I think is most missing in today's Gospels presentations. And he says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. So he says, after his resurrection, Christ ascended. He was exalted at the right hand of the Father. For David, he says, did not ascend into the heavens. But again, now he draws upon uh, the ancient Hebrew scriptures again. And look at what he says. He says, he quotes from Psalm 110, the most quoted whole-testament passage in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, again, he's, he's reasoning with him. He's like, David spoke this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. He's saying, who is David calling Lord? In this text, there's the Lord and then there's Lord. You're like, the Lord said to my Lord, like, is it the, like. And what he's speaking of is the exalted Messiah who himself would be the embodiment of God, who would share the throne of God, one God, eternally manifest in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son being exalted to the highest seat of cosmic authority, and then he ends with kind of the final summary, his final summary statement of the gospel, and listen to what it says. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know. What is the news that needs to be spread throughout all? What is the news that flooded Jerusalem and Samaria and went all the way to the ends of the earth and transformed the world? It was this news that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You know, those words, Lord and Christ, they don't actually mean the same thing. They're similar, but not the same. Christ is, trans, it's, a trans, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which refers to God's anointed king, the appointed judge who would rule over Israel, the, the, the appointed uh, one who would come and restore true worship, the one who would defeat God's enemies, the messianic king. Lord means So, so Messiah means long awaited king of Israel. Lord means king of everything. And so he announces this news. And notice the crowd's response. You know, he's been pressing this upon them, he's been arguing with them from Israel's scriptures. And there is something about the eyewitness testimony of these 11 disciples that have stood up to say, look, we've all seen him, the one you crucified. There is something about this whole experience where they wake up to something. It's almost like they had been asleep. Ignorant of what was really going on before their very eyes. Ignorant when they were crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Those high priests and, and Sanhedrin and the religious, ignorant when they were handing him over to the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, the shock of awareness sets in. You know, have you ever had one of those just, oh, no moments? You're just like, I, no, I didn't just do that. You know, I did. this is like the ultimate oh no moment in human history. The very people that put Christ to the cross. And look at what it says. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. I just imagine some of them shaking. What have we done? What have we been responsible for? And they're shaking and they cry out to Peter and to the rest of the apostles. They say, brothers, what shall we do? God has made this Jesus Lord and Christ. What are we, what do we do? And notice Peter's response. It is so clear and so incredibly merciful, and it's also so effective. Notice Peter said to him, he said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, look, I'm gonna be clear. Here's what you need to do, repent, repent. You say, what does repent mean? (laughs) Repent, again, it's like one of these churchy words that gets thrown out there. We beat people up with it. Repent simply means to have a dramatic reorientation of yourself. To change how you're thinking, how you're viewing reality, and reorient your whole direction of life. Pastor and author John Mark Comer describes it like this. He, he describes repentance as this. He says, rethink everything you know about who God is, who you are, and what the good life you crave is, and actually put your trust and confidence in me, Jesus, to heal, to save you, to free you, and to lead you into the life you ache for. So he says, repent. Repent. And be baptized. Baptism is is an external of an internal reality. It's saying, look, say goodbye to an old past and enter into a new life, enter into a new deep connection with Jesus, be baptized into the name of Jesus and become a part of his new community. And so he's clear. He says, they're like, what do we do? He says, repent. But the thing that strikes me here is he's not just clear Peter on this moment is incredibly merciful because notice, notice again the text. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ or else he's gonna take your sad, sorry bodies that put him on the cross and torment you in hell forever. He doesn't say that. Now, if I were Peter, I would have been working up a really good one at this moment. I mean, they crucified my Lord I'd go after him. Peter is so merciful. He says, turn. All you have to do is turn, and everything's forgotten. You're forgiven. You're washed. You're cleansed. And not only that, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What is the gift of the Holy Spirit? It is the very personal presence of God. He says, God's personal presence wants to be with you. The very hands that took him, threw him over to have him crucified. He says, he wants those hands to come, and he just wants to come in and connect deeply. It's so merciful And he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and to everyone to whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so he is clear and he is incredibly merciful. And it's so effective because look at what it says. Those who received his word were baptized and there were added about 3,000 souls to the church on that day. You know how big it was on day one? It was 120 and now it's at 3,000. What is that like, 300% growth of the global church after one sermon? Now, as we stand back and we, just, we, we look at Peter's announcement of the gospel, let me just quickly make a couple observations. Number one is this. The good news for Peter is not about a ticket to heaven when you die. He doesn't mention heaven. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, nobody mentions going to heaven when you die. The announcement is about the God who created heaven and earth entering into creation to defeat all of the enemies in God's world and to set everything right again to deal with systemic evil, to deal with personal evil, to deal with everything that is holding power in God's world and in our personal hearts in destructive ways. God came in to defeat those enemies and to establish his kingdom. Rich Fiotis puts it like this. He says, the gospel is the good news that God's kingdom has come near in Jesus Christ and through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the powers of sin and death no longer have the last word. And so it's not first a message about a ticket to heaven when you die. It is is about... The long awaited fulfillment of God's promise to defeat evil in God's world, to establish God's kingdom and his healing rule in God's world. It's about God becoming king in God's world again. Second, the gospel, according to the apostles, it's not just about Friday, it's not just Jesus died. Of course it's that. Jesus died for your sins. But the good news is better than that. It is that the crucified one who bears the scars and who, bear, who bore your shame is the one who has been raised from the dead and is ascended and is seated in the highest seat of cosmic authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been imparted into the hands of Jesus. And those hands are nail-scarred hands. These are merciful hands. These are good hands. So the good news is... It's not just a ticket to heaven. It's about God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, coming to earth and renewing and restoring all things. It's not just about Friday. It is about Sunday, and it's about the ascension. It's about the exaltation and the second coming of Christ, where he will ultimately be revealed as the world's true king. But finally, it's not just an invitation to say a formulaic prayer. The gospel includes a call to repent, to reorient your whole life around this reality, and it calls for no less than that. Now, this too is good news because there is nothing better than you could imagine than to be able to entrust and reorient your whole life around this Jesus. And so when he says, repent, turn, reorient yourself around me, this too is mercy and grace. It is all mercy. It is all grace. God has been at work in Jesus doing all of this work. God has raised Jesus from the dead. God has exalted his son. And God says, come, orient your life around me and trust yourself to me. And this kind of gospel, with this kind of result, with this kind of response, is it will ultimately lead not simply to getting more decisions, but will usher into a deep and meaningful life of discipleship to Jesus as the true King and Lord of everything. Father, we come to you, and God, you're. Power and your love and your mercy takes our breath away. In this, your love has been manifest that you sent your Son into this world to rescue us. God, would you open our eyes afresh to the largeness of the gospel? to the goodness of the gospel. And would you free us up from orienting our lives around lesser lords and messiahs? And God, would we be free to give ourselves unreservedly to orienting our our life and our being around your son, Jesus? And in so doing, may we experience the joy of forgiveness and the joy of your presence and the fullness of this life that you have invited us into. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.